Thanks for listening to the New Life Church Searcy podcast. If you'd like to get connected to what God is doing at the Searcy campus, you can text the word Searcy to 88000. There you can give online, get connected to a life group, find your place in a serve team, and so much more. You can also find today's message notes in the YouVersion Bible app. Just tap the link in the episode description to follow along during the sermon and save notes directly to your phone. Now prepare your hearts to hear a great word from God today. This morning, uh, I started last week, if, if you weren't here, uh, I started a, a, just a little two-part series, uh, only for the reason that I couldn't get through it in, in one, but uh, if you weren't here, uh, we're talking about mean people and what to do with them, okay? Mean people and what to do with them. And so I want to recap just a little bit of last week, catch you up to speed for those of you who need a refresher and uh, for those of you who may have not, not been here. So we started talking last week just about the, the obvious that there are people in, in the world who are not kind. And um, we just aggressively called them mean. Um, but there are people who are not kind. And not only are they not kind, but they, they can target you and I. They make us part of um, their disappointment in themselves or other people or a disappointment in their own life. And somehow that makes its way to our doorstep. And so whether you work with them or they're, they're your boss, and unfortunately, and all jokes aside, but some of you live in the same home with mean people. Um, but I talked last week, I started off just talking about how we typically and traditionally um, respond and react to mean people. So the reason we respond and react is because we don't have a plan, and we need a plan because a plan allows us to not be caught into compensating, okay? And so compensation really in this context means to be caught off balance, like I can't believe you said that, or I can't believe you did that, or I can't believe you're really mad about that, and I can't believe that you're being this, this hateful to me, it's just, and you're kind of caught off guard and so emotionally or, or physically or spiritually, you feel like you're having to, to reel things back and quickly compensate to have something to say to them. We talked about three rules. We covered the golden rule, um, which we all kind of grew up saying, which was do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And then I made a couple of rules up. The second one was the iron rule, which was do unto others as they have done to you. Or do worse to others as they've done, done to you. Now, this is, is what uh, feels good to us. It feels justified to us. It feels right to us. And uh, just to be very clear, it feels good. Like there's an endorphin release when your enemies suffer at your hand. Okay, it's one of the reasons why violence can be so addictive because to be vindictive and avenge yourself can feel great. And um, I talked a little bit about how culture plays into that, how in the South we are, we, we kind of lead with, I'm not going to be a doormat for anybody. We train our, our kids how to do that. So the iron rule is I'm going to do back to you what you did to me, or I'm even going to come up with something more creative and seize a moment or an opportunity and do worse to you than what you actually did to me. And then there was the projection rule, which was, do unto others as someone else has done to you. Now, what that means was that at some point in our lives, somebody did something to us, and because they are now unaccessible, 
or because they play a role in our lives where they have authority, we will not retaliate. But what we will do is bottle up that angst and redirect it towards somebody else who's more vulnerable. And that's, that's the projection rule. So I'm not, I'm not mad at you, but I'm going to be mean to you because I'm mad at this other person, but they are not accessible to me or they play a role in my life that's more important than the role you play. So I'm going to take all my anger that I have toward this person and put it toward you and I'm going to project that, okay? And so, but the bottom line is this. It's difficult to be kind to unkind people. It's difficult to be sensitive to insensitive people, and it's difficult to just like people who are not likable. And um, what makes this so relevant is not only Jesus talked about it, but the story that we're talking about and using as our text today um, reiterates that this is something that happens all the time to people. And we've got to figure out, we need to have in our faith DNA, how am I going to handle somebody who is mean. How am I going to handle somebody in my life who chooses not to like me and not to get along with me? And I think this story does a great job of giving us a, a starting point. So I'm going to take you back to 1 Samuel, and for the sake of review, I'm going to read the text I read last week, and then we'll get into new material. I just kind of want, to, want you to know where we are in the story. So if you want to go to 1 Samuel chapter 25, I think it would be wise uh, I'm going to read through uh, 10 verses here, and then I'll, I'll, I'll move on. So this is what I read to you last week. A certain man was very wealthy. He had 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, and in those days, keep in mind this is ancient writings, but in those days, this was the epitome of wealth. I have a lot of things. And it says, he had 1,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. Now his name was Nabal, his wife's name was Abigail, and Scripture puts this in here for us. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband was short-tempered and mean. Okay, there's our, our word, verse 4. And while David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Now, I, I need to give you some context. Sheep shearing time was when wealthy men figured out how much more wealthy they had become in a season. So uh, sheep shearing time meant how, how much wool that you were going to get. It meant how many lambs were born over the course of that period of season. And so um, it was a time of a wealthy man counting money, so to speak. And so he would say, hey, I'm, I, I did better this year than last year. And so David knows this. Why? Because David was a shepherd. So he knows what's going on. He knows what season it is. And so he was shearing sheep. So David, verse 5, sends 10 men to him. And he says, go to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you in your house. Good health to all that is yours. And he says, I hear that it is sheep shearing time. So this is a time of prosperity. And then he wants to partner with him. So he says, when your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Again, a little bit of context. David is on the run. He is not King David in the story. He is not shepherd boy David. He is fugitive David. So 
He is living in fields and caves on the run from Saul. Saul at this point has tried to kill him nine times. Saul's daughter Michael was given unto David in marriage, and now Saul has given her away to another man. And this is just, there's just a lot of, of angst that is built up within David. But he finds himself asleep, him and 600 men, asleep in a field. And right next to them is Nabal's shepherds and his flock. And so what is happening is David is telling him, listen, when we were next to them, we protected them. We didn't take a sheep for our she- ourselves. Nothing was missing. Okay? We coexisted well with each other. And so basically he's saying, your prosperity is in part due to my protection. And he goes on in verse 8 and he says, ask your servants and they will tell you. So he's saying everything went, went really well. So when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal the message in David's name and they waited. And Nabal answered and he says to him, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take bread and water and meat that I've slaughtered from my shears and give it to these men coming from who knows where? So the answer is no, go away. And so David's men turn around, they come back. When they arrived, they reported every word. And David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped on his as well. And it says about 400 men went up with David. Okay, how many of you have ever overreacted to something? Yeah, this, this is an overreaction. So he's got 600 men. He leaves 200 men back to stay with the items that they've collected, watch camp, etc. But he says, I want 400 of you to put on your sword and come with me, and we're going to go down to Nabal's house, and we're going to kill everybody. He actually says, woe unto me if by sunrise one man is alive down, down there. So we're talking about all of his male servants, his sons, perhaps his nephews, and Nabal himself, he says, we're going after them, 400 men. This is going to be a slaughter, all right? And so I want to pick up from there and come back to where the story, where, where we left off last week. So meanwhile, back in Carmel, all right? So let's go to chapter 25, verse 14. One of the servants, it says, tells Abigail, Nabal's beautiful and intelligent wife. David sent messengers to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were so good to us, they did not mistreat us. The whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing went missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Verse 17, now think it over. And see what we can do. Because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. And I like to think that this servant kind of leaned in. He didn't say this out loud, but he just kind of leaned in. And he said, he is such a wicked man. And no one can talk to him. And Abigail, it says, verse 18, acted quickly. Why? Because she's smart. She knows what's happening. She knows that this in this day and time was so offensive and such a rejection 
that she knows something is going to happen. And to take it a step further, she knows David. And I'm going to prove that to you in just a moment. She knows this guy. She knows what's going on. She knows his reputation. He's a violent man. He has destroyed communities. And she knows he will have no problem coming to our house and killing us all. So she acted quickly. And what did Abigail do? Well, she got a caravan of food donkeys. Right? You guys have heard of food trucks. Well, Abigail started that. Okay? So she loads up all these donkeys and loads them down with food to go and provide a peace offering for David. And she tells her servants in verse 19, go on ahead, I will follow you. But she did not tell her husband what was going on. Why? Because she thinks he's mean and I got to figure this out. I got to save us all. So she says, you guys go on, try to stop them from moving forward. I'm going to be behind you pulling all this caravan of food donkeys and we're going to get to you and I'll, I'll just do some work once I get there, okay? Now, meanwhile, you got to get the context of this. David, 400 men are coming down a mountain, and they are prepared for a small war. And the Bible tells us David's kind of mumbling. So he's like, I should have never protected this guy. I can't believe this. I'm having to spend my whole weekend going down here and killing people. Woe unto me. May God deal with me if I don't kill every one of these guys. And he's getting himself amped up. And so he's kind of mumbling, mumbling to himself. And then he comes out of this ravine and into an open field. And when he does, he sees a host of Airstream trailers full of just food and a beautiful woman standing there. And he stops. He holds everybody up. Hang on a second. And verse 23 says that when Abigail saw David... She gets off her donkey, bows down before him, puts her face to the ground, and watch. This is so powerful because she begins to speak to David as if he's already the man that she needs him to be in this circumstance. She is going to speak to him almost prophetically about who she needs him to be in this situation so that nobody gets hurt. Now, this is a Jedi mind trick. And I want you guys to follow me and walk through this. Ladies, please take note. This will work on any man, even when he knows you're doing it. Okay. Verse 24, she fell at his feet, said, pardon my servant. Let me speak to you. Hear what I have to say. Please, she says, pay no attention to this wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him everywhere. What Abigail is saying to David is, you are not wrong about my husband. And David says, I'm not? And she says, no, you are right about him. He's a fool. Verse 26, and now as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord, watch this, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. David's like, I'm not going to avenge myself. No, 
you're not that kind of man, are you? Verse 27. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. And the Lord your God will certainly make a dynasty for you. Because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. It won't? No, it won't. And then she knows about Saul too. Watch this, verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. This is, this is my favorite part. This is what makes her so stinking smart. She takes him back to 15-year-old David. And at the end of verse 29, she says, But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. She's saying, I know you. And I know your story. And my husband knows it too. And I'm sorry he's a jerk. And I'm sorry that he's so mean. But this is what I believe the Lord is going to do for you. See, I've heard you being talked about. I know your story. See, the reason you were so kind to our shepherds is because you were a shepherd. What Abigail's agenda here is to say, David, do you remember what it was like being a nobody? Do you remember before the Goliath thing when your name dropped in, on the map and everybody knew you? People wrote songs about you. Before you were so connected to the king and his son was your best friend and you married his daughter and everything was great and the, the prophet anointed you with oil before before any of those things, when you were just a guy out in a field as a shepherd. But God's hand was on you. Do you remember that, David? David, you do not have to get even today because the Lord has been with you your entire life. Now, I asked you this at the end of the message last week, and I'm going to ask you again here in a moment. But she basically says to him, David, what story do you want to tell when this is nothing but a story to tell? And here is her, her version of this, verse 30. She says, when the Lord has fulfilled for you every good thing that he promised you, and when he has appointed you ruler over Israel, you will not have this on your conscience, the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having to avenge yourself. She says, there's going to be a day when this whole thing is over and past and the Lord goes on to fulfill in you what he promised you at 15 years old and you're going to be the king of Judea and Israel 
and God's going to do some amazing things in you, and you're going to be wealthy, and you can have anything you want, and you can say to this person, go and do that, and another person, go and do that, and nothing is going to be withheld from you. You do not, David, want to be in that place and occasionally think about the day you walked down in this valley and killed my family. What do you want to tell when all this is just a story to tell? And David, watch, who was seething 20 minutes ago, opening up to a ravine, mumbling to himself about how his time had been wasted, gathered 400 men, have been marching on their way down to kill an entire family, is reminded what getting even would do to him. So in verse 33, he says to Abigail, may you be blessed. You have good judgment. You have kept me from bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hands. Okay, to modernize this. You gave me something to think about so much so that now I'm feeling differently about it. Thank you for talking me out of that conversation. Thank you for stepping in and, and stopping me from making that foolish post that was going to go out to 4,000 followers. Thank you that I, I didn't schedule coffee with them or just drive by and cold call them. Thank you that I stopped that text message. Thank you, Abigail. And he says in verse 35, I have heard your words and I grant you your request. Now listen, at some point, we all need an Abigail in our lives. At some point, we need someone who cares about us to reach over, put their hand on us and say, I don't think this is the smartest thing you've ever done. We might need someone in our, in our lives to, to talk us out of returning evil for evil. For engaging the iron rule. For getting creative in our own thoughts about what we could do. The moment is there. The opportunity is before us to get even and we could do it and feel great about doing it. But then we're going to have to spend the rest of our lives thinking about how we walked into something and with our words or with our attitude, we cut someone down. Today, I'm your Abigail. And I'm going to tell you to take a pause. To catch your breath. To think about it. To pray about it. So we have three clear and distinct characters here. Nabal gives evil for good. David protected him, and he told him, I will not help you. Why? Because he's mean. You can't explain it. You can't science it. You can't theology it. It's just he's mean. Then you got David. And David's going to give evil for evil. Why? Because David's predictable. He's like you and me. It makes sense. Go get him, David. 
You got 400 men with swords. Why would you not go down there and flex on them and prove that you're David? You're the one that's worthy of a song being written about you. Do it. Evil for evil. Why? Because he's predictable. But then there's Ab- Abigail who gives good for evil. I know you're trying to hurt me. I know you're on the way to my house. I know you're going to wipe out my sons. I know you're going to kill my husband. I know these things, but I want to bless you. I want to give you food. I want to remind you. I want to speak over your life. I want to bring you back to the 15-year-old you and then talk about God fulfilling his promise to you. Why can she do this? Because she's remarkable. She's able to to go through these processes in her mind and be remarkable with it. Now, here it is. We got three choices. Evil for good, evil for evil, or good, good for evil. But here's the hard part, okay? It's the worst part of this sermon is coming up, so just get ready. If we are really following Jesus, we don't have three choices. We got one, and that is to return good for evil. Our only option is to be remarkable. Now let me bring you to one of the hardest scriptures you're ever going to read in Christianity. And it's Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, I want you to love your enemy. Now this sounds great when you don't have any enemies. But I'm talking about those of you who do. I'm talking about people who are in this community or away from this community who constantly badger you, talk about you, think you made a stupid decision, hurt you, left you. He says, I I want you to love those people. And then it gets worse. He says, I want you to do good to those who hate you. I want to pause for a moment because last week, uh, several of you reached out, and it was basically the same question repeated multiple times. And so I want to pause and answer that. The question was basically this, Kevin, what about abuse? What about people that like I had to cut out of my life who are mean? And and how, how how do I do good to them? Well, good is a relative term in this. And you're going to have to ask God what it means for you to do good to someone who who hates you. There's no way I could get up here and give you three points in a poem and it apply to everybody about how, how you're going to apply that to people in your life that you need to do good to them. For some of you, it, it's, it's just that. It's to show and demonstrate a physical kindness. For others, it's going to be to do, for you to do good is, is to get them out of your head. To stop giving them mental real estate. And that's doing good. For some of you, it's going to be doing good means that you're going to stop wishing someone to be dead. I told this at the early service too, but I was working with this couple one time, just pastorally. It was conversational. It was just me trying to help a family. And the lady in this family was talking about an individual that was not in the room and the words were very hard and they were very sharp and I remember at one point in my mind I thought she she would want this person dead like I could could just feel it like 
This is what she wants. And then she started talking. She kept on talking. I was listening, listening. She talks, and she makes this statement. She says, I just wish that they were still alive so I could give them a piece of my mind. But they're dead. So maybe for some, doing good for you means that you stop wishing someone dead, and for others it means you stop wishing someone alive. There's all kinds of ways to do good to those who hate you. You're going to have to ask the Lord how that works for you. He goes on in Luke chapter 6. He says, I want you to bless those who curse you. Now, this was actually a practice. And to bless someone meant that you actually spoke life over them. Okay, So think about someone who is mean to you, curses you, does not like you, communicates that. And the Lord says, I, I, I want you to bless them. Now, what this meant was that you actually gave them a blessing. And it would go something like, I bless your marriage. I bless your family, your children, your health. I bless your career. I bless all those dreams in there that are trying to get out. I just bless that over your life. And you begin almost prophetically to just speak words of life over them. And I found I, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at this. I'm not, I haven't perfected this. But I can tell you this, the times I've practiced this becomes a release valve for your hatred. It's very, very difficult for you to bless someone's life and hate them at the same time. And so the more you do it, it feels very odd at first. It feels very forced at first. It doesn't feel very genuine or authentic at first, and that, that's okay. He, he doesn't say, I, I want you to do it and enjoy it. He just says, do it. I want you to bless them. And he ends with, I want you to pray for those who mistreat you. This Luke 6 is one of those verses where you go, I'm either going to do this, like I'm all in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love, and I'm going to bless and, I, and I'm going to pray for, or I'm not doing any of that. And we go right on to verse 28, and we say that's not going to be part of my practice as a believer. There, there's not gray areas in Luke 6, 27. And this is what makes it extremely difficult, and it's one of the hardest scriptures to digest because it goes against every single thing in you. It goes against your mind, it goes against your body, it goes against your spirit, it goes against your emotions, it goes against your culture. I'm not going to be anybody's doormat. You can just get over it. I'm going to find an opportunity. I'm coming back on this karma, baby. It's coming to you. And, and we, we, we just retaliate quick. But for me to stop the process and go, hey, you know what? I got mean people in my life, but I'm going to bless them. They may never even know it, and that's okay. I'm not asking you to send gift baskets and, and, and order pizza for all, all your enemies this week, okay? I'm just asking you to make a space in your mind where you can love and bless and pray for. Now, here's the thing. Does anyone anywhere do this? 
Chances are, if, I, if the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and we were able to see complete honesty in this room, we would probably all get an F on this. But we have to be challenged today not to write the predictable story that is we're going to retaliate, we're going to do evil for evil. God made me just as creative as my enemies, and I'm going to find the way. I am going to get you back. At some point in some time, you need to live your life looking over your shoulder. And God is saying, that is not how I want you to live. You are more mature than that. You are more free than that. Don't do it. So we have an opportunity like Abigail, to write a remarkable story. And I want to end with these same four questions I gave you last week, and then I'm going to pray. Here they are. Do you really want to be even with someone you don't even like? Do you want to be even with somebody in your life that you don't even, you don't even like them? To be unlike them would be the wisest thing. Two, wouldn't you rather get ahead? Wouldn't you rather do something, live, live your life in such a way that you were above that? That you were more mature, that you were the adult in that? That you could really and truly turn that stuff over to God and say, I don't even have to worry about the meanness in my life. I will let God deal with that and he can handle it, and I don't even have to give real estate to it. Third, what story do you want to tell when this is just a story to tell? What do you want to be able to say about this in six months or six years or 16 years? What do you want to be able to tell your kids when they're asking for wisdom about how to handle mean people? Do what I say but not as I do? Or do you want to be able to say, let me give you an example of how hard this is, but how remarkable it can be in your life? And fourth, this is the biggest question for you today. What would it look like for you, for you, to return good for evil? Again, this, this is relative. For some, it's going to be an act of kindness. For some, it's going to be a coffee and a conversation. But I'm not talking about reconciliation here. I'm talking about just showing goodness instead of evil. What is it going to look like for you for the mean things in your life? Now, I want you to stand with me across the room, all everybody in the house. And I want to tell you this. Last week I started and I said, I want you to think about a mean person. Currently, somebody you work with, live with, go to church with, sit down at Thanksgiving meals with, whatever. doesn't have to be current. It can be somebody that you try and try and try to get out of your head and sometimes they occasionally pop back in. you got to deal with all those thoughts and things because we're going to do something incredibly difficult right now. We are going to pray for those people. And I want you to imagine them. I want to allow your spiritual theater to come forward and I want you to picture them and I want you to feel all the feelings that are associated with the image you have in the, of them. And I want you to bless them and pray over them right now in this room. I want us to exercise right now, Luke 6, 27. Now, I'm, I'm going to pray, but I don't want you to just take my words and say, yeah, what Kevin said, God, apply that to my life. I want you to pray. You don't have to pray out loud. You can pray in, in, in your head, but I want you to pray over that person. Father, right now, we humble ourselves. 
And God, every situation in this room where we could return evil for evil, we choose to pray and bless. So today we do that. God, right now I I pray over my enemy that you'd bless them, encourage them, wherever they are today, whatever they're doing. I pray for their marriage, God, their finance, their health. God, they may be going through the worst season of their lives. And I bless them. God, they've said some of the deepest things to me that have cut me. But I pray over them today. God, there are men today in my life that have been mean to me in the ministry, and I pray over them. I bless their church. I bless their leadership. I bless their ability to teach the word and influence lives in a positive way. God, there have been plenty of people use me as a, as a doormat just to be mean. But Lord, I bless them today. I bless them. Give us peace. Help us to write a remarkable story and give good where there has been evil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's lift up the name of Jesus together.